investors to the Absolute Return Podcast, your source for stock market analysis, global macro musings, and hedge fund investment strategies. Your hosts, Julian Klamachko and Michael Kesslering, aim to bring you the knowledge and analysis you need to become a more intelligent and wealthier investor. This episode is brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. Welcome, investors, to episode 22 of the Absolute Return podcast. I'm your host, Julian Klamachko. And I'm Mike Kessling. Today is Friday, July 12th, 2019. Got a number of important topics to chat about on the podcast this week, including Virgin Galactic. It announced that it is going public via a SPAC or a special purpose acquisition company. What is this and why did they choose this structure? Canadian cannabis producer CanTrust is mired in some controversy after they got busted by the regulator over illegal growing activities. Stocks down big, we're going to chat about that. Fed Chair Jay Powell is really setting the stage for a rate cut this month. Will it be 25 basis points or half a percent? Also, in central banking activity, the Bank of Canada held its interest rate steady at 1.75% at their meeting this week. What's next for Canada's central bank? And lastly, an additional activist opposes Hudson's Bay Go Private Offer. What's next and what's happening in this deal? Interesting announcement this week in going public activity. We don't have an IPO or a direct listing as we've discussed before, but here we have Virgin Galactic going public via a reverse takeover of a SPAC or a special purpose acquisition company. In this case, it is called Social Capital Hedda Sophia Court. So what happened is Richard Branson, he has a space tourism startup called Virgin Galactic it announced that it's going public with Social Capital Hedda Sophia Holdings through a reverse merger of the SPAC or Special Purpose Acquisition Company. Now, Social Capital, it's run by venture capitalists and former Facebook executive Chamath, and I'll try not to screw this up, Palihapitiya. So the SPAC will invest $800 million into Virgin Galactic for a 49% stake. This includes $100 million from Chamath himself. He'll also serve as chairman of the new company. And what's it doing with this money? Well, it's actually paying 300 million of this cash to Virgin's existing shareholders, including the Virgin Group, which would be Branson, and Abu Dhabi's Mubadala Investment Company, clearly an earlier backer of Virgin Galactic. So they're looking to exit some or all of their stake there. Uh, what Social Capital Hedosophia is, as I said, it is a SPAC, which is a publicly traded shell with no operations, just cash. It IPO'd a couple of years ago in 2017. It has a mandate for to merge with a private company and take it public through an RTO within two years. Now, they were coming up pretty close on their expiry date. Uh, that two-year expiry date to get a deal done, which I believe is in September. So some speculating that this deal was kind of a Hail Mary pass to get something done prior to having to return all of shareholders' money uh, back to investors. Getting into some details behind Virgin Galactic, they expect that this deal will give it enough capital to fund the business until its spaceships can commercially operate and become profitable. What Virgin Galactic does, they basically send tourists into space. Now, some 600 people have already put down about $80 million in total to secure seats on vehicles as it hopes to put first customers into space over the next few years. 
They've already raised more than $1 billion since it was founded in 2004, mostly from Mr. Branson himself. So this company has been around for quite a while, 15 years, and still hasn't really made you know, any steady operations, actually haven't sent uh, any customers into space yet. So Saudi Arabia's public investment fund announced plans to invest $1 billion into Virgin Galactic in 2017, but Mr. Branson himself, he suspended those talks a year later after the news of the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, a dissident writer at the Saudi consulate. Now that was fairly controversial and they're supposed to do a deal, Branson was supposed to do a deal, get investment from Saudi Arabia into Virgin Galactic, but he scrapped that amidst all that pushback against Saudi Arabia for allegedly mur murdering that journalist. What happened then is Chamath saw that and approached Branson with a deal with his SPAC, um, Social Capital, to do a reverse merger and finance Virgin Galactic that way as a public entity. Competitors of Virgin Galactic include Jeff Bezos' Blue Origin and Elon Musk's SpaceX. So this is really the playground of uh, billionaires, it seems. Some background on SPACs, or special purpose acquisition companies, they have raised $6.8 billion in the U.S. year-to-date, which is the largest six-month total since 2007, so certainly a bull market in SPAC financing. These SPACs are also known as blank check buyout funds because initially you're just betting on the management team to find a deal or a company to acquire and bring them public. Sponsors or the management team that launch these vehicles, they can wind up with a 20% stake in the eventual acquisition target. I'd like to note that historically these SPACs have had pretty horrific shareholder returns over the past uh, number of years, basically from 2010 to 2017, there's a study that indicated SPACs underperformed the market by about 3% per year in the first three years after their IPO. So, so some caution there just on SPACs in general. What are your thoughts on this really interesting go public transaction via SPAC from Virgin Galactic? Yeah, so first specifically with Social Capital and Virgin Galactic is that Social Capital, they're really viewing Virgin Galactic through the lens of a software company. Now, Chameth had mentioned in, I believe, one of the interviews that although they're a hardware company, he views them through this lens of a software company that once they do get to scale, that he thinks that their profit margins will be very substantial. So with regards to that, they do project that profitability will come by Q2 of 2021. Now, none of their competitors are profitable. Um, so it, it, it does remain to be seen whether these whether this firm can become profitable, but that, that's their estimates so far. One thing that you had mentioned with regards to SPACs and their kind of lack of returns is that typically the play, it's kind of a hedge fund play where you look at buying the issuance and with the attention of just redeeming at the par value while holding on to the warrants, um, which is the typical kind of SPAC arbitrage trade. Right. So to get into that transaction there, uh, when these SPACs do their IPOs, a bunch of hedge funds typically subscribe because in the IPO, you not only get a share, which you can redeem to get your money back when they announce a deal because shareholders need to vote on the deal. 
They also receive a warrant in the Proforma company once the deal gets completed and it starts trading at the uh, operating company level. In this case, the SPAC will convert to Virgin Galactic, assuming shareholders approve the deal. So what a hedge fund would do would be subscribe to the IPO, vote against the deal and get your money back for the shares. So you have no risk, you get all your money back, but you continue to hold on to that warrant, which is basically a call option, a long-term call option that allows you uh, to participate in any upside on the share price. But the problem is if too many hedge funds are involved and do that, then they receive their money back. The company doesn't have any more money, so they may have to cancel the deal altogether or go to, the, go to a bank and borrow that money. Then they could end up just having a much too levered balance sheet, which we have seen on many of these in the past, and that has led to some very, very poor returns, basically down, downward sloping share prices as they spiral towards insolvency due to this over leverage uh, because of this redemption mechanism and hedge fund participation in the SPAC IPO. And so you do get some really interesting investor dynamics where you get the shareholder base will really turn over from all of the hedge fund arbitragers throughout the normal course pre, pre-announcement and even into the announcement. And then after the company, presumably if they do either win the vote or they bring on a bunch of leverage, the investor base completely turns over. And so there are some interesting things that you can see in the share price dynamics. Yeah, we're certainly seeing that. I saw an analysis that looked at the number of Robinhood accounts holding uh, social capital, the SPAC that announced the Virgin Galactic deal, because that's how you get access to Virgin Galactic is by buying the SPAC, which was trading around $10, and it has rallied as Robinhood investors, which are pretty much millennial retail investors that uh, some consider dumb money because they they are more so speculators, aren't known for doing substantial due diligence, but uh, some of the top holdings of Robinhood account holders would be cannabis names, Tesla, and other speculative names such as that. As you know, Robinhood is the free stock brokerage, uh, discount brokerage account where you can do free trading. It's heavily favored by millennial traders, and you're seeing substantial amount of interest and shareholder turnover as these Robinhood traders, uh, millennial speculators, pick up the stock from hedge fund holders who participated in the IPO and now are looking to exit at a gain. Big news in the cannabis space this week with cannabis producer Cantrust. Their stock really getting hammered as they remain mired in controversy. A big uh, regulatory misstep by them. What happened was they halted sales of all their products. This amounts to nearly 30,000 pounds of marijuana amid a Health Canada investigation into illegal growing activities at Cantrust. What they did was Cantrust used fake walls in its unlicensed rooms to cover up illegally grown plants in staged photographs that were sent to Health Canada in a regulatory checkup. Basically, they're growing cannabis in five unlicensed rooms in its 12-room greenhouse in Pelham, Ontario between October 2018 and March 2019. There were several thousand plants hidden behind these walls. So nearly half of their growing space was unlicensed and they utilized that secretively and tried to hide that uh, from the regulators. Health Canada was warned about the illegal activity at Cantrust by a former employee who turned whistleblower, which gives you 
concern and wonder, you know, how much of this, uh, these shenanigans are happening at other cannabis producers because Health Canada totally wouldn't have known about this if not for this whistleblower who came out and um, sent an email to Health Canada warning them about this nefarious activity. In a statement on Thursday evening, the company said that has implemented a voluntary hold on sale and shipment of all cannabis products while Health Canada investigates its manufacturing facility. Some sell-side reactions, analysts are now openly questioning whether the company will actually lose its growing license, which obviously would uh, destroy its whole business model. And it faces the possibility that it will be forced to destroy thousands of kilograms of cannabis, worth tens of millions of dollars. It could also potentially face a large fine. Now, analysts are estimating that 30 to $70 million of sales are potentially at risk here where Health Canada would just destroy that product. I believe it's uh, over 5,000 pounds of cannabis. At least nine sell-side analysts have downgraded the stock and reduced their target prices dramatically. I saw one analyst downgrading from $13 per share to $5 per share in terms of the target price, but really that's uh, closing the barn door really bef after the horse has uh, left. Could have used that warning quite a bit before, but you know that's the game of a sell-side analyst. They don't really add uh, a lot of value there, and their price targets should largely be ignored, in my opinion. So, getting into some precedents here. Now, Health Canada has suspended cannabis licenses twice before, so it certainly isn't unprecedented. They suspended the license of a Maple Ridge, BC-based grower called Agrima Botanicals Corp. Uh, what happened here was they were found to have been selling products into the black market, which is obviously a big no-no in this highly regulata regulated industry. The second precedent would be on Winnipeg-based Bonafide Medical Cannabis. What they were doing, they were caught sourcing cannabis from the illegal market. Now, CanTrust isn't really doing any nefarious stuff in the black market, but they were you know, doing something totally different in terms of trying to hide unlicensed growing facilities and um, these effectively unregulated product that they're growing. So on Wednesday, the Alberta Gaming, Liquor and Cannabis Commission said that it was placing a hold on all effective lots from CanTrust while the Ontario Cannabis Store, the province's wholesaler and online retailer said it was ending sales of all CanTrust products pending the outcome of the investigation. So those two bodies, those two regulatory bodies, certainly major players in the retail and wholesaling space. Bottom line, the stock is down 50% just this week. They've lost close to $500 million in market capitalization of their stock. Basically, investors are losing confidence. There was a class action lawsuit disclosed, and I have to disclose that we are short in one of our funds, ATSX, the Enhanced Canadian Benchmark. So we are short the stock. We have been short the stock for quite a while before all of this has uh, you know, come to the forefront. But what are your thoughts on this uh, really unfortunate turn of events at CanTrust and you know, really mind-blowing that they would do this? Yeah, and mind blowing in the in the sense that they were actually viewed as one of the you know quality operators in the space. So this does come as at a bit of a surprise, just in terms of their. When I say quality, I just mean in terms of their practices. 
which obviously aren't, <laughs> that is not the case. Yeah, they're viewed to be quite the credible management team, but that's really uh, gone the way of the dodo bird in this controversy here. Absolutely, yeah. And so the question of how much the management team knew, that remains unanswered as of as at this point. But we can speculate that it's highly probable that they yes. knew and likely directed all of this activity. Yeah, that's a, <laughs> that's a fair, fair assessment. But yeah, so in terms of, okay, what does this mean? So you'd mentioned that they weren't in any any you know selling into the black markets or anything like that so that was the case for the two suspensions so the only rationale for them not losing their license would be that they weren't actually selling into black markets but even still you know something of this scale you know they i don't think it's a guarantee that they don't lose their license so the other option would be destroying the this cannabis that is held so it's actually 12,700 kilograms mm. as you had mentioned about 30,000 30,000 pounds so in terms of what that would mean in terms of their inventory that would be about 70% of their current inventory as of the last quarter which is a substantial amount just can you know think about another company where you know 70% of their inventory was just gone the next day that's very crippling for for any company um, so it'll be interesting to follow along with that. As you had mentioned, you know, moving forward, even if they don't lose their license, they'll have the financial implications of losing this inventory, as well as just all credibility. Most of their end markets are, you know, government wholesalers. So the Ontario wholesaling function, unlikely to, uh, to be able to continue on in a major, major way with them. Uh, so it'll be really interesting to watch moving forward. Right, and so the bottom line here, really a big no-no by Can Trust Management in trying to hide illegal growing operations, and now the stock has lost a considerable amount of value, nearly 50%. Investors really can't trust Can Trust anymore. Analysts are really losing faith in the story, dramatically reducing their target prices, because as you said, there are major financial implications, potentially wiping out 70% of their current inventory. You're going to see a dramatic hit to sales at a minimum likely and perhaps even losing their license which would uh, you know be a serious blow to companies so we'll continue to monitor this situation and see how things develop here major news out of the federal reserve this week as the fed chair sets the stage for a july rate cut chairman of the federal reserve jay powell what he did is he told a congressional committee this week that he would act quote or act as appropriate to protect the U.S. economy from the disappointing performance of the global economy. The comments raise expectations that the Fed could cut rates this month, which is really what the market is expecting here. By stating that he would act as appropriate, he's effectively foreshadowing to the market that, look, you know, global growth isn't great. We will cut rates this month. And it's a matter of how much that the market is now guessing. Despite a strong jobs report for the month of June that we saw last Friday, and last month's new truce and the trade war between the U.S. and China, which we talked about on last week's podcast, Mr. Powell said, quote, uncertainties about the outlook have increased in recent months. 
Another quote from Chairman Jay Powell, he indicated that economic momentum appears to have slowed in some major foreign economies and that weakness could affect the U.S. economy. Moreover, a number of government policy issues have yet to be resolved, including trade developments, the federal debt ceiling and Brexit. And there is a risk that weak inflation will be even more persistent than we currently anticipate. However, Powell did not commit to any time frame for possible monetary easing, nor did he point to the scale of the upcoming interest rate cuts that would be required to protect the U.S. economy from growing risks uh, to halting this expansion, which has been going on for over 10 years now. It is now the longest U.S. economic expansion that is growth consecutively without a recession, um, the longest of all time. So the Fed, which hiked rates four times last year, they've kept their current benchmark overnight rate in a range between 2.25% to 2.5% since December. As we've been discussing on previous podcasts, they were on a hiking cycle going into Q4 of last year, but then the S&P 500 uh, you know, dropped 20%. You've had this flare-up in the U.S.-China trade war. You've had some negative economic data points, and the Fed really hasn't seen inflation where it would like to be. It's a bit lower than they like, so they really changed their tune from steady rate hikes to a pause to now what is looking like a rate cut. Looking at market pricing of a rate cut here, now the market is pricing in a 100% chance of a rate cut later this month in July. Now that's divided between an 80% chance of a uh, 25 basis point cut or 0.25% and a 20% chance of a 50 basis cut or half a percent. But that 50 basis cut probability declined after the strong jobs numbers released last Friday, which actually beat expectations. That was a scenario in which good news was bad news for the market because they weren't uh, expecting as much stimulus from the central bank after the economic figures came in better than expected. But bottom line here, the market really liking Jay Powell's dovish comments here and his desire to cut rates. You saw the S&P 500 crossing 3,000 for the first time ever, an all-time high, in addition to the Dow Jones Industrial Average crossing 27,000 for another new all-time high. So certainly markets liking this, at least large cap growth stocks in the U.S. really liking this. What are your thoughts on the Fed action this week? So this is exactly what, when, when market commentators talk about the Fed messaging, this is exactly what they're talking about is that last week with the strong, strong jobs numbers, market participants didn't know what to think now because they, they had these strong numbers come out, but the overall thought process was that the Fed should be cutting rates. And so with Powell coming out this week and just you know, completely throwing water on, you know, any idea of just holding pat. It does, yeah, it's all but a sure thing that they will be cutting rates at the end of the month. And so that, you know, that's exactly what they talk about is preparing the markets for, you know, so that it isn't just a drastic surprise announcement. The other aspect is, as you had mentioned, they've it really is a, a quick turnaround between four rate hikes over the last year and really just into holding steady and then doing a rate cut. You typically don't see such a drastic you know, turn in, in Fed policy. But the, the last aspect is just 
that what well, the one thing that really stood out to me was his mention of economic slowdowns globally having a major effect on the U.S. And so sometimes when looking at the monetary policy, it's easy to look at it as it's in a bubble, whether it be the ECB, the Bank of Canada, or the Fed, that you're just worried about your own country. But actions by other countries, so the ECB cutting rates, does have an effect, a, a second order effect on what the Fed will end up doing. Certainly, you need to take what other central banks uh, are doing, what other economies are doing, you know, what's happening in the trade war. And there's there's so many, uh, you know, diff- diff- various intricacies into these types of decisions. And what you also mentioned, which makes this scenario quite unique, is that typically the Fed cuts rates in a recession or serious um, stock and bond market flux where you're having a big drawdowns, big volatility. But I mean, you look at the Fed's dual mandate, their dual mandate is for stable prices, i.e., you know, inflation around 2% where it is and full employment. And I believe employment, unemployment in the U.S. is at an all time low. Uh, You know, the jobs market can't really get better than where it is, which is, I believe, 3.6% unemployment rate around an all time low. So if you look at it from the perspective of the Fed's dual mandate, there's really no need to cut rates, especially when they are supposedly below the neutral rate and certainly historically quite low to where the Fed has been normally. But economists are viewing this potential July rate cut, which is now looking like a near certainty. They're viewing it as an insurance policy against a slowdown rather than a reaction to sharply worsening data. What that implies is that Chairman Jay Powell running the Fed, he is what we consider dovish, which means is very open to easy monetary policy, easing monetary policy to placate markets, to make market participants happy. He's not uh, hawkish who would, uh, you know, hike rates and, and see the market go down. He wants to see this economic expansion continue. He wants to see the stock market continue to do well. However, one of the risks for the Fed in cutting rates now is that it could leave it less room to stimulate the economy once a new recession does come sometime in the future. So it's an interesting scenario where typically the Fed tries to be counter-cyclical in terms of, you know, when that economy is slowing down, markets getting crushed, they will come in and cut rates, ease monetary policy to assist in financial markets and the economy in uh, reversing the uh, downward portion of the cycle. But in this case, it seems like they are looking to implement further monetary stimulus through a rate cut when markets are at all-time highs and the economy is doing great. So a real interesting scenario, which we will continue to follow as the Fed makes its decision later this month. But bottom line, markets really loving this. S&P 500 and Dow Jones hitting new all-time highs off Chairman Jay Powell's dovish Fed comments. More central bank action this week. We're going up north to Canada. The Bank of Canada held its interest rate Benchmark interest rates steady at 1.75% in a meeting this week. The reasoning behind the decision to keep interest rates steady was it could balance domestic economic improvements, which they see the Canadian economy steadily improving, with an expanding global slowdown caused by trade conflicts. Basically, the Bank of Canada is seeing the China-US trade war 
as a major risk, not just that, but Canada has uh, somewhat gotten involved as they have faced some punishing trade conflict from China due to their involvement in the whole Huawei issue when uh, the Huawei CFO was arrested in Vancouver a number of months ago. The Bank of Canada, which was widely expected to maintain its benchmark interest rate, so this really is not a surprising move, but it did downgrade its 2020 domestic growth forecast from 2.1% to 1.9%. It also downgraded its global growth forecast to 3% from 3.2% due to these trade disputes. So as you indicated on the last topic is that central bankers don't just consider domestic issues. They really take the global economy into account in addition to any sort of struggles that the domestic economy is facing. Now, Bank of Canada Governor Stephen Paulus is in no rush to change the benchmark rate, even as they noted policymakers in the US and Europe, as we discussed, they have signaled they may introduce cuts to respond to this weakening of global economic activity. Got a statement here from the Bank of Canada. They, they stated, recent data show that Canadian economy is returning to potential growth. However, the outlook is clouded by persistent trade tensions. Taken together, the degree of accommodation being provided by the current policy interest rate remains appropriate. Escalating trade conflicts, geopolitical tensions, and, and related uncertainty are contributing to the broad-based slowdown of global economic activity. So there you have it, a really balanced view from the Bank of Canada in their interest rate decision to keep their benchmark rate steady at 1.75%. Some details behind that decision. Now, consumption in Canada is being supported by the healthy job market and rising wages, while the housing market at a countrywide level is stabilizing. As we previously discussed, there was concern in Toronto and Vancouver with sales down pretty dramatically, but it looks like those markets are starting to turn around, sales picking up, price levels stabilizing in those two cities. Interesting comment from Carolyn Wilkins, who's basically the number two at the BOC, the Bank of Canada's senior deputy government. She said, Canada and the United States are taking different approaches as we discussed, you have the US Federal Reserve now looking like they're going to start cutting rates and the Bank of Canada looking like they're going to stay pat on rates, not hiking nor cutting because they're in different stages of the economic cycle. Wilkins stated that, quote, the fact that Canada is picking up while the US economy is slowing sounds like a divergence, but in fact, it's a process of convergence. The United States is slowing to a more sustainable pace, while Canada is moving back to its trend growth. As we previously discussed on other podcasts, that U.S. economic growth was 3.1% in Q1 annualized, which was a very strong growth number, but Canada really lagged that. I believe Canadian growth is sub 2%, so you have quite had uh, you have quite the difference between US economic growth which has been really strong and Canada their economic growth has really been uh, laggard uh, recently but the Bank of Canada's view is that that's going to change the US economy is slowing somewhat not necessarily recessionary but more so to a growth level of 1.5 to 2% meanwhile Canada picking up from a below trend growth rate. What are your thoughts on the Bank of Canada decision here? Yeah, yeah. As you mentioned, the it's not technically a divergence just because they're in different portions of the business cycle. But yeah, just the fact that other central banks are cutting and Canada's just standing pat, not looking at raising.
increasing rates, but literally just staying exactly where they are. With the job, the data coming in has been quite strong. It's, we've, we've talked over the last few months about the strong jobs numbers that have been coming in in Canada. Wage growth is outpacing out inflation. So although our economy in Canada isn't as reliant on consumption as the U.S. is, I believe the U.S., it's about 50% of GDP is attributable to consumption, and which is way less in, in Canada. Although it doesn't, although our growth isn't as reliant on that, that still is really good to see as well. You do have some, some response in oil prices, um, which the Canadian economy is obviously very levered to those. So those are two aspects to continue watching moving forward to get an idea of what's going to be happening at the Bank of Canada. So market action, the Canadian dollar strengthened to a near nine-month high against the greenback, the U.S. dollar, adding to its gains since midweek when the Bank of Canada made it clear it had no intention of easing monetary policy in contrast to the Federal Reserve. Now, the lunar, the Canadian dollar, has been rallying since June when U.S. Federal Reserve Chair Jay Powell struck a dovish tone during a monetary policy update. And he strongly signaled this upcoming July rate cut. So within days, the loonie jumped to more than 76 cents per US dollar from about 74 cents. So you're seeing a pretty strong rally in the loonie. I know the Bank of Canada is really comfortable with it in this range, but if the loonie starts trading up you know, over the 80 cent range, then I think the Bank of Canada could act. They don't want to see the domestic currency appreciate too much because that could be damaging for the economy. So one of their roles, although not officially, but you know, it comes out through the economic data is they do want to somewhat control the price level of the currency as to uh, keep the um, economic growth cycle growing. And, uh, you know, a currency that's rallying too much could put that at risk. So that's something that they're looking at. They don't mind the dollar in the loonie in the 76 to 70 cent level, but if it keeps rallying, then I think that they could move more closer to a potential rate cut to try to get that, that loonie level down. Some advice for listeners. I mean, this is great if you have a variable rate mortgage, a line of credit, a margin loan, any sort of variable rate debt that depends on prime rate because prime rate is dependent on the Bank of Canada's benchmark interest rate. And what Paulus is saying is that you don't have to worry about rate hikes for the time being. He's going to stand pat for now. So your interest rates, they're not going to go up. They're going to stay the same. And if anything, they're, they'd likely be you know, more likely to do what other central bankers are doing in Europe and the US, which is monetary easing through interest rate cuts. And if that's the trend, then uh, you know all things equal, I think the Bank of Canada is more likely to ease or cut rates as opposed to hiking, which is really off the table for the time being. Touching now on the Hudson's Bay Go Private offer that we've been covering a lot lately because it's a really interesting M&A situation. Now what happened is a third activist investor, they are a Canadian private equity firm called Sandpiper Group. This third activist investor joined a growing list of Hudson's Bay shareholders who are opposed to the $9.45 Go Private offer from the chairman, Richard Baker, in taking Hudson's Bay private. That is, buying the shares off the minority shareholders and taking it off the stock market for $9.45 per share cash. We talked about, you know, why this was a bad deal because 
You know, the CEO recently indicated that Hudson's Bay real estate was worth $28 per share. I have seen it disclosed in the past. HBC thought their net asset value of their assets, which is largely real estate, not the retail operations. These could be worth as much as $35 per share. The company IPO'd, I believe in 2012, at $17 per share and was trading at near an all-time low at six and change prior to this go private offer. But I mean, 945 this offer $9.45 cash per share really looks sad when you take all that into account. Now Sandpiper's founder, now they didn't have a an official comment on this, but the founder previously stated that HBC could be worth as much as $35 per share. Other minority shareholders, including Land and Buildings and a US-based real estate activist investor and Catalyst Capital Group, they all oppose the bid, saying it represents a fraction of what HBC's real estate in Canada and the US would be worth if it should be sold. Most of the dissident shareholders have zeroed in on the value of HBC's really prime real estate holdings. You have some, you know, on Saks Fifth Avenue, New York is one prime example, which is worth billions of dollars itself. You know, that's one of the greatest real estate properties globally. They've said that Mr. Baker's bid, uh, Mr. Baker is the chairman of HBC, it's worth far less than the value of the retailer's real estate alone, excluding any sort of operating entities. Land and Buildings says the offer should be raised to at least $18 per share, which is nearly double where it's at right now. Meanwhile, HBC doing some shareholder friendly activity. What they did is the special committee hired an independent financial advisor to help evaluate this $1 billion go private offer. It also pledged to consider criticism from minority shareholders, but basically, what dissident investors are doing, the activist investors pushing back on this offer, they'd like the company to either hold an auction for this company or just find another bidder. They want to see it sold to the highest bidder, not these entrenched uh, management group. They want to see this company shopped to see who's gonna pay the highest price and they want to recognize fair value, which they believe is significantly higher than the current $9.45 offer it. So they want a sale process here. What are your thoughts on this continually interesting M&A situation? Yeah, so this really lends more credence to what we already knew is that the retail operations themselves really don't have a lot of value anymore. The real value of this company is just the real estate. And the fact of the matter is the activists that are becoming involved, Sandpiper, Catalyst does is a bit more <laughs> diversified, but as well as land and buildings their focus is real estate. You're not seeing any retail turnaround experts get in, involved in the name. You're really just seeing these specialty activists get involved. And so I think that just really lends more value that yes, there is more value than is what, what, than what is being offered and that in the future, the retail operations likely won't exist. And, and another option that you had mentioned is that these activists, they're looking for a proper sales process, but it even could just be them self the company self-liquidating itself, selling off each of the properties one by one. Now, obviously that's a longer term process for investors, but that is, if, if you're even able to get, you know, in that $18 per share range that Land and Buildings had mentioned, well, that's more, and, and waiting a couple of years, that's more 
that's more a, a better outcome than just getting $9.45 today. Right. And what's problematic is that management has really failed over the past number of years to crystallize that value for shareholders. As I indicated, the stock was near an all-time low, $6 and change before they unveiled this go private offer. It was as high as $27 per share, I believe, in uh, you know, around five years ago. So they have really been unable or unwilling to unlock this real estate value for public shareholders. It looks like they are trying to go private with the lowball offer such that they can crystallize the value for themselves. And what's really interesting, I should note, that part of Chairman Baker's buyout group includes WeWork. And what WeWork is doing, they are the um, co-work office leasing giant that's backed by SoftBank with valuation in the tens of billions. What they're looking to do is basically take HBC's prime real estate and turning it into co-working areas, which could really crystallize the value here. It's unfortunate that HBC hasn't tried to execute that business plan such that public shareholders, public minority shareholders can uh, retain some of that upside because I think it's a, a really good idea. And as you indicated, a bunch of activist real estate investors, real experts in the real estate space, experts at evaluating the value of the real estate, really recognizing that value and fighting back against this uh, apparently what looks like a lowball offer. So it's an interesting situation that we'll continue to monitor here, but the market is really expecting a higher price here as the shares trade above the 945 offer closer to the $10 range. Analysts expecting a bump or an increase in this offer, but hopefully the financial advisors can fully chop this company and get significantly higher value for minority shareholders here. And that's it, ladies and gents, for episode 22 of the Absolute Return podcast. If you liked it, you can enjoy more podcasts on absolutereturnpodcast.com. If you enjoy it, please leave us a rating and we will chat with you next week. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in to the Absolute Return Podcast. This episode was brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. The views expressed in this podcast are the personal views of the participants and do not reflect the views of Accelerate. No aspect of this podcast constitutes investment, legal, or tax advice. Opinions expressed in this podcast should not be viewed as a recommendation or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or investment strategies. The information and opinions in this podcast are based on current market conditions and may fluctuate and change in the future. No representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made on behalf of Accelerate. As to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast, Accelerate does not accept any liability for any direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage suffered by any person as a result of relying on all or any part of this podcast, and any liability is expressly disclaimed.